Hi again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the World Football Index South American Football Show. I am your host, Austin Miller, joined, as always, by two of my favorite people to podcast with, Adam Brandon and Simon Edwards. Adam, down in Arica, Chile. Adam, have you gotten over the results of the last round of the Conmobile World Cup qualifiers? Will you ever get over them? Um, yeah, probably just about, although, you know, I have the og. The odd uh, pang of pain every now and again, thinking about Chile not being there. But you know, a chance to discuss some of the issues in Chilean football um, on this pod tonight, which I'm looking forward to. We've, we've had a few questions in already. And a chance to, to maybe look forward a little bit. Eventually, Chile will play competitive matches again. So uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Simon Edwards in Medellin, Colombia. Copa Colombia, first leg of the final tonight. Simon, how are you doing? Yeah, good, good. Medellin is hot. You know, people talk about seasons down here. I've never really got my head around what that means, but <laughs> it's a hot, it's a hot week. Last week was a rainy week, so uh, people say we're in the hot season now, but I don't think they know what they're talking about because it doesn't seem to make any sense. Definitively in the cold season here in Chicago. It's coming, it's getting windy, and it's getting chillier by the night, so soon we'll be frozen in up here in the far reaches of the north. Uh, on this South American football show tonight, um, thank you to all the listeners who submitted questions. We're going to be going through a number of those tonight. Um, so thanks for helping making our jobs easier as to what to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about the youth systems of the respective countries that uh, we know best, Colombia and Chile for Adam and Simon, respectively. Uh, then we're going to, as we said, we'll give you some updates on some of the players that we've done spotlight pods on in the past, some of the up-and-coming South American youngsters. Uh, we'll let you know where they're at and kind of our, our thoughts on how they've been playing lately. Then we'll talk a bit about Chile and Colombia and what's going on uh, domestically and in the case of Chile with the national team. Uh, so yeah, that's what we've got coming up for you tonight. Guys, let's start with the question that was submitted by Outlaw on Twitter asking us to compare the youth systems of Colombia and Brazil and kind of the young players that are coming up through there right now. We figured we would fold Chile into this as well because I think it makes a good discussion Simon, I'll start with you. What is kind of the state of where Colombia is in producing young players? It seems like, and I don't know how it's been in the past, but it seems like there are a lot of very good, very talented youngsters coming up through Colombia and making their way over to Europe. Yeah. Now, in terms of strength in depth, Colombia is excellent. The system is very different to other places around the world. Um, and I'm still trying to work out uh, if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Basically, so in Colombia, there are uh, two divisions. There's the top division, which has uh, 20 teams, and the second division, which has uh, 16 teams, I believe. Um, so there's not that many professional clubs. Um, but in terms of youth development, obviously, there are some clubs that have their, their direct youth teams, which are then directly linked to the clubs. Uh, they also sometimes have affiliate clubs where they'll give some uh, some resources, some coaching, some you know some some support for local regional clubs. But there's also a lot of youth teams that don't have any affiliation to professional clubs who produce players up until 17, 18, 19 years old at times who immediately leave those clubs and go straight to big European sides or walk straight into Colombian first teams. So it's very, very different. Um, I, I had a look at 
Uh, I've noticed um, on Twitter, Escojar, who's a good person to follow at Escojar on Twitter, he had a list of some Brazil U17 players' release clauses. And there's Brena, who's 50 million euros, Lincoln, 30 million, Paulinho, 30 million, Vadinho, 20 million. And these are like 16-year-olds with 50 million euro release clauses. The Colombian situation is completely the opposite. So there's a very, very interesting Colombian forward who has scored four goals at the Brazil, uh, sorry, the under-20 Wolverine, complete, you know, attacking winger forward. And he plays for a team called Estudiantil, which is basically an amateur youth team here in, in Medellin. And this club has produced players directly for Europe. Uh, very recently, Edward Balaños and uh, John Wilmar Ranjo have gone straight into the Rayo Vallecano. Second team, we've been doing really, really well over there. So it's very different because Colombia has these youth competitions and really the difference is rather than playing for the biggest clubs, the players are noticed and players are, are developed by playing in competition often against these big clubs. But it's these big tournaments, for example, Pony Football, which is an under-14s tournament. That is kind of where players make a name for themselves. And that's publicized on TV. That gets big crowds. So the situation in Colombia is very different. And, I, and I'm not sure if it's better or worse. It's very different because a lot of these players will play and train very regularly. These youth sides are not professional, but they take things very seriously, train three or four times a week at times, after after school, in the afternoons, in the evenings. They compete against some of these professional teams in the local leagues, but they're not directly affiliated to professional clubs. So while there are Brazilian players, as we'll mention shortly, Vinicius Jr., going to Europe for 45 million euros, and other players with release clauses, 50 million euros, despite being 15, 16 years old. In Colombia, Peñalosa, who is very, very interesting, plays for an amateur youth side and has no release clause. You know, you pay a nominal fee to the club for, for supporting his development and, and he's yours. So I think it's very interesting. There's some big, big differences in the, in the setup and the, the way the system works in Colombia compared to I mean, many other places. It'd be interesting to see how things are in Chile and if you have any thoughts on Brazil. One of my great frustrations um, with Chilean football at the moment is the fact that there doesn't really seem to be much direction or, or really a plan when it comes to youth football in Chile. I think players tend to just come out of the blue, you know, despite of the system rather than because of the system. So this golden generation that Chile have, you know, recently benefited from in sort of last 10 years, that wasn't particularly planned. Although a number of those players did come through the Cobreloa youth system. And interestingly enough, Cobreloa is a club that has struggled in Chile in recent years, um, has fallen on really hard times financially and, you know, has stopped sort of producing that line of talent that they used to. And it looks like Chilean football has suffered as a result. But I don't know, Simon, there in Colombia, if there is kind of a set way of playing, like a philosophy might be too big of a word, but sort of a an idea of play that is encouraged throughout the country, throughout the youth systems in the country. Does that exist there? Because I know from speaking to some coaches here in Chile, but it doesn't here, despite the influences of Bielsa and San Paolo in over the past decade. You know, that hasn't really translated down into the youth levels. 
Well, I think in Colombia, you know, every club is different. There are certain clubs which are very progressive. Um, Deportivo Cali is, has had an excellent record. Obviously, Envigado is a club I've spoken about a lot that focus a lot on youth development. Um, some clubs focus more on the physical attributes, Atletico Nacional being one where we've seen a number of very impressive defenders, Davinson Sanchez and Carlos Cuesta, uh, coming through. Cuesta obviously isn't as big as some of the other defenders we've seen, but a lot of their players are very strong and that's something they focus on. In terms of style of play, well, the Colombian style of play is very much focused on you know, good Colombian football is is kind of passing football, is collective, is is short, sharp passes. Um, but again, there's also the big focus and emphasis on the number 10. Every It seems that the best player coming through most youth academies tends to be the number 10 at an early age, at least the player who catches the headlines. So there is that emphasis on the, on the number 10 playmaker. Also, and again, we don't want to get into a, a Scottish-style question of, genetics um, but I do think Colombia being a country with very distinct regions and having a real mix of, of uh, racial and uh, you know uh, backgrounds we've got some players in inside in the internal parts of the country that are, tend to be smaller whereas the Pacific coast the people are often quite bigger there are a lot of African descendants in that region of Colombia uh, the, the Caribbean coast as well is has a distinct cultural and, and and racial mix, so I do think that does contribute as well to the to the style of play. Um, there's you know, players from certain regions of the country uh, often have certain attributes which contribute to the team, uh, which is quite an interesting a- aspect as well. Uh, I know Envigado bring a lot of their more physical players in from the Pacific region, guys who you know are often taller and stronger. Whereas the the local guys in Medellin tend to be kind of smaller and more technical. Um, Medellin is a is a uh, is a in Antioquia, which has a Pacific coast, and there does seem to be that connection with local clubs over there. So there is different factors involved, but I think overall, um, Colombian football is typified by you know kind of a passing game ideally. Uh, fullbacks who tend to push on a little bit, but very much a focus on short, sharp passing and having that number 10 as the kind of creative force in the team. I think uh, there are so many heirs to Valderrama. Uh, one of the issues Colombia had after 94 was everybody was a playmaker. <laughs> so um, I think that that traditionally in Colombia has been a, a, a sign of quality. If you're the best player in the team, they'll put you as a number 10. Um, and I, you know, obviously over time, players emerge in other positions and have gone on to be very, very successful. But I think a lot of the youth teams will have that number 10 creative force who is the kind of fulcrum for the team. Colombia definitely do have that clear identity that you've spoken about. And here in Chile, before Bielsa came along, Chile never did have their own identity. You know, they tried to copy various styles of play from across the world, really, until they until they found this kind of high-pressing, high-tempo, attacking, fairly directing the opposition's half but still with a lot of passing and a lot of quality style of play which you know Bielsa founded and then certainly San Paoli sort of expanded on but like I say that that hasn't translated down in into the youth levels and that kind of worries me because I I, I just feel that Chile are now gonna Chile are gonna go backwards anyway because I just don't see that kind of level of talent that Chile have produced in these last in in this last decade coming through and they're also going to be at a bit of a loss on the field. 
because they're probably going to be caught between kind of various styles of play. Uh, that's that's my concern. When you haven't got that kind of united front running through the direction of your FA on how you believe football should be played, then I think it can cause issues for the national team. And I think I think that's something we've probably seen over the years with England, no, Simon, as well, um, that kind of confusion of how to play the game. Yeah, I mean, I think with England, there's the conflict between uh, the Premier League style of play and the national team style of play. You know, often the England players uh, are the the supporting cast alongside the more cultured and and stylish uh, European or international players in the side. So when it comes to the national team, there's kind of a lack of identity. You know, the players who a lot of the club sides are built around are no longer there. And it's making the most of what's left over. But yeah, there's there's Indeed. a question for many years in England about yeah. how what is the English way of football, and I yeah, I think it's a big question. Yeah, and you you also touched on the genetics argument there that Strachan came up with um, in Scotland the other week. Personally, I did kind of laugh it off at first. I would say that you know listening to you know some more educated arguments on the subject, you know, there, there probably could be something in it, but ultimately, you know, I've, I've just, I've witnessed in recent years, Chile win back to back Copper Americas with Gary Medell and Gonzalo Jara as their center back pairing. Um, <laughs> two really short guys. And when Jara was suspended in 2015, after that incident with Cavani, you know, Gato Silva came in to the center of defense. He's not exactly tall either. So, I think that's a little bit of a cop-out as an excuse, the, the height argument. I think there could be something in the argument when it comes to things like diet and nutrition over the years. And, but again, when I look at Chile, you know, certainly here speaking, you know, with my family here in Chile, you know, food in the 70s and 80s wasn't exactly the most nutritious um, food going either so it's a strange one go on Simon what are you going to say no I, I absolutely I mean I think to say you know the tallest teams are the best teams or to simplify it in that extent is ridiculous because the best teams tend to be the smallest teams at the moment uh, the teams that can play with the ball the best but I do think it does affect the way that a team approaches the game you know if you have a, you know the likes of Jerry Mina uh, you know we're always it's, it's incredible to see Jerry Mina dominate a game and a lot of that has to do with his physicality if he wasn't as strong and as quick and as powerful he would have to change the way he plays and as a result the team would have to operate in a different way you know you know not to say it would be better or worse the likes of Ivan Cordoba is, is a, one of the smallest defenders who played in Serie A and was incredibly good but the way he played his game had to adapt uh, as as does Medel and the likes in Chile uh, and as a result, the team would also have to adapt the way it plays. So I do think Colombia having such a, a diverse population of diverse backgrounds and diverse physical uh, attributes and physical qualities, you know, I think that is something that factors into the way that uh, these teams are set up. And, uh, you know, having the likes of you know, the Cuadrado on, on the wing and having some very powerful, strong defenders at the back, Davinson Sanchez and Jerry Mina it does give certain advantages and it allows the more technical players in the middle to have something to work, you know, a basis to build upon. 
not to say that it would prevent a team from being successful, but it's definitely a factor in terms of the way uh, a philosophy is developed and a team is set up. Go ahead. Yeah, j- just one final point. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, when Bielsa came in with that idea of, of, of play for Chile, you know, it was based not just on the players he had at his disposal at the time. It, he did look at Chilean football historically and to see what kind of players Chile have produced over the years. And it was kind of these fast, fairly small types with decent skill, decent passing, incisive passing, uh, and capable, and Chile have always been capable of producing sort of the odd great playmaker as well. And they kind of produced two in in the same generation in, in the shape of Valdivia and Mati Fernandez. I believe that Chile will produce you know, probably two or three quality players within the next decade. But without a proper system around them and without this kind of foundation, I worry that they will just get lost in the system. Let's stick with the theme of youth here for a little bit, guys. And we got asked about a lot of young players who have come through recently in South America, some of whom have moved on to Europe, some of whom are still applying their trade in South America uh, Adam, I'll start with you. Twitter user Brian wants to know what you've made of Davinson Sanchez so far at Spurs. I've not watched a ton of Tottenham so far this year, but from what I've heard and from what little I've seen, Davinson seems to have hit the ground running and it has certainly lived up to at least how we hyped him on the Libertadores pod last year, no? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, the day signed for Tottenham, um, Simon and I did a pod on him, on on his move to to Tottenham, and looking back on that pod now, I don't know if you agree with, with Simon. We were probably a little bit too conservative. We could have gone even bigger on hyping him up because he's probably exceeded our expectations uh, so far. He's he's slotted into that defence, and he's definitely had one or two uncomfortable moments, possibly in each game, but overall. He's really, you know, slotted in there perfectly. And I know that the Spurs fans who go regularly have been, you know, really impressed with that, how quickly he seems to have adapted, adapted to, to, to life in England and, um, and, and to the Premier League. So, yeah, fantastic. Um, he, you know, he's looked comfortable playing in that back three, which I believed. He would be. So um, I'm happy to be proved right on that. And also, I don't think he's been given a chance to play much yet in a, in a back four and a back two, or, you know, as, as a, one of a pair of centre-backs. But when he does, I'm sure he's going to be more incapable of playing like that as well. And, and, and this week, of course, he, he was part of the Tottenham side, which managed a 1-1 draw away to Real Madrid. So it's onwards and upwards for young Davison, I think. No, Simon? You know, I'm not surprised he's popular with the Tottenham fans because he's one of those defenders who's so powerful and com- combative that there's times when he just brushes the forward off and leaves him on the floor and, and turns away, bringing the ball out. And, and that's the kind of thing that can really lift a crowd and can really get a crowd behind you. So he has those moments as well as being very accomplished and 
positionally solid and, and you know, technically good in the ball. Those moments where he just brushes off the striker, you know, the big number nine leaves him on the floor and then turns around and dribbles off or, or drops the shoulder and beats the forward and then passes it. You know, those kind of moments, you don't often have many defenders who can really lift a crowd, but he definitely has that in his in his locker. And I think that's something that's going to endear him to the Tottenham fans moving forward. Yeah, I think I think the fact that and and we did mention this on that on that globe pod, the fact that he was moving to a side which was unusually so for the Premier League as well, kind of defensively solid as a as a whole unit really, but a whole team, but especially the the two centre backs who were currently there at the time as well, the Tongan and and Alvideraud, and both of those have really helped. I think Davison Sanchez um, fit in there. Um, and with the with the Ajax connection as well, that's also another yeah, factor. They exactly, both learn yeah. the same from the same coaches. Simon, a couple of other players that we got requests for some updates on. A pair of Colombians in Carlos Cuesta and Jose Izquierdo. What can you tell me about what those two are up to right now? Well, uh, Cuesta is is still eighteen years old. He doesn't turn nineteen until March next year. So. He's still incredibly young, but he's also incredibly established. You know, we spoke to him uh, about him on a spotlight pod, which I'd recommend everybody listen to. They're really excellent uh, with Austin and and they're always very good talking about different players. And we spoke about Cuesta and, you know, I'm going to echo echo what I said, but he's continues to be very, very polished. At times he's played as part of a back three for Nacional. Um, Done very well to the the side of the centre. He can also play fullback incredibly composed comparisons with the likes of the aforementioned Ivan Cordova in terms of a player who's not Davinson Sanchez levels of power and pace, but he's, he's quick and he's very, very, very tidy, uh, very accomplished, very confident. Uh, you know, the kind of defender who at 18 can just slip into the team and, and never looks, never looks nervous, never looks overwhelmed, has played Copa Libertadores games with, composure uh, as you mentioned at times at fullback at times centre-back but for me a very very promising talent very all-round defender who's solid and, and just yeah very controlled so he's very impressive still at Atletico Nacional they're having well in terms of the league they're, they're joint top but they've kind of dropped off a little bit we'll see if he um, I would imagine he'll probably stay until at least the summer uh, so we'll see him in the Copa Libertadores next year Nacional have already qualified so that'll be an interesting test to see how he does uh, back on the biggest stage here in South America. In terms of Izquierdo, he's uh, obviously at Brighton. I think he's going to be an important player for Brighton this year. He's played in four games, hasn't had that many minutes, mostly off the bench so far. Uh, I think he'll do well for them. Uh, it looks as though the wing is going to be very important for, what they're, for the, what they're looking to do. He's very quick. He's very direct, skillful, has been the player of the year in Belgium, one of the top goal scorers, scored in his Colombian debut. Uh, I think he, he's going to score a lot of goals. He plays from the left, cuts inside onto his right foot, uh, and is you know very powerful shot, skillful and direct. I think he's going to be a player who's going to be the, make the difference for Brighton this year. It's still working yeah, his way into the first team. But go, go I on. haven't, yeah, I, I haven't seen much of Brighton this season. But I know that when Chris Hewson was manager of Norwich. He always played with inverted wingers, so you know players who could who would cut in and shoot. Um, Snodgrass was the best at it, whilst at Norwich. So, do you think Iskero is better than Snodgrass? <laughs> I think he's quite a different player, but 
I think he'll be very effective in that role. Uh, cutting in from the left and shooting on the right. He scored 20 odd goals a year in Belgium doing that. Uh, obviously, it's a step up for the Premier League. But as we've seen, I think he's a similar player in some ways to Richarlison. Obviously, Richarlison has made an incredible Im- impact uh, so far. Uh, Izquierdo hasn't done that yet. But I think in terms of a, a direct, skillful, pacey player... I think Esquerdo has the qualities to do well in the Premier League. I think he'll come good. And I think towards the end of the season, he may be the decisive man in terms of keeping the side in the in the division. Austin, have you been surprised at just how good Richarlison has been for Watford? I think I have a little bit. He's uh, I definitely rated him when he made that move over to England. And I, and I thought that Watford could be a good place for him. You know, Tom and I did a spotlight pod, and I, I liked what Richarlison did when he was at Fluminense. He was a player that impressed me with his style of play. But I think he definitely has surprised me by just how well he's kind of fit in and how there, it really didn't seem, Adam, like there was any sort of a, uh, adaptation time for him. He kind of just no. got to the team and boom, he was, he was there. You know, yeah. it didn't take also, any time to figure anything out. Yeah, and also how much, like, he looked part of the team as well, you know, how he celebrates goals with, the, with his teammates, everything like that. He, he seems to have really adapted to life so quickly. And it looks like on and off the field as well, looking at his interaction with his teammates. And that's something that is so often a concern for Brazilian players, especially those that choose to move at that age to England. But now we've seen with both Richarlison and Gabriel Jesus, those are two players, obviously, of, of different talent levels but that have gotten straight into their teams and have just really hit the ground running with no sort of, of delay, no sort of time to figure things out. They're just, boom, right into it and doing really well. So th- that's awesome think, to see for those guys. I, th- I think both with Richarlison at Watford and Davison Sanchez at Spurs, the fact that they've got a manager who you know also speaks you know the same native tongue as them you know, has probably really helped with that adaption, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I would definitely think so as well. I, you know, I've obviously never been in that sort of situation, but I can imagine not trying to weave through listening to things in other languages and then getting it translated down the line. But to be able to communicate straight with your manager very comfortably, I have to imagine is is crucial for those guys. And, and I think you know we've seen how well they've done in in their start to the Premier League. Quickly, a couple of other players that uh, we were asked for updates on. Well, at least one quickly, and one we'll talk about a little bit more. Artur at Gremio just got his first Brazil call-up under Cheech. He's a very good kind of midfield player. He is on the list for upcoming spotlight pods. So down the line, there should be a more in-depth look at Artur from Gremio. Uh, he's been a big part of Gremio's success this year, kind of a little bit under the radar because he's not the goal-scoring talent that Luan is, and he's not a part of... Their attack, which has shown itself to be so dangerous at points this year, but certainly a good midfield piece. I think he's a guy that that could be off to Europe sooner rather than later. So definitely look out for that spotlight pod. And as is seemingly always the case, a question about Vinicius Jr. Adam, I will come to you first. I don't know how much you've seen of Vinicius Jr. at the club level or how much you've seen of him at the national level. He is not with the Brazil under-17 team at the under-17 World Cup, though he's eligible. Um... His club, Flamengo, uh, 
denied his release. Basically, there was an agreement between Flamengo and the Brazilian Confederation that if Flamengo were to win the Copa do Brasil, they would release Vinicius Jr. to go play the Under-17 World Cup. They did not do that. They lost to Cruzeiro. So they are still fighting for a Libertadores spot. Had they won the Copa do Brasil, they would have had that Libertadores spot wrapped up. But Reinaldo Rueda, the Flamengo board, chose to keep Vinicius Jr. there in order to help them in their quest for the Libertadores. I don't know how much help he's going to be doing, considering he's only really playing 10 minutes a match, but that's a discussion for a little bit later. What have you made of Vinicius Jr. thus far, Adam? Yeah, so first off, I was very disappointed with the fact that he didn't travel to India with the Brazil under-17 side, because you know the best of what we've seen of him so far came in the under-17 South American Championships here in Chile, where, you know, he was the star of the tournament. That's kind of where I really started to to like him as a player. And then he got that move to, to Real Madrid. Yeah, it has to be said, an absolutely ridiculous, unbelievable, overhyped price. But I think the thing which has happened to him is because of that price and that move, you know, obviously the expectations went through the roof but I think that you know he's overanalyzed now to such a degree and I'm also wondering because if you go on YouTube you can watch basically every single touch that Vinicius Junius has had on a football pitch since he made that dodgy debut in front of 80,000 people in American art in May which plenty of people laughed at because you know, he gave a he gave away the ball each time. I'm wondering if he's maybe sort of the first player come in sort of fifteen come back in fifteen, twenty years time and you'll be able to see, you know, every single touch he's ever had on a football pitch because people are making videos about him looking at literally every move he's he makes on a on on a football field at sixteen years old. And that is a lot of pressure to deal with. What I like about him actually is his is his fearlessness and I think fearlessness is kind of learning's greatest aid in some ways you know the ability not to worry about making mistakes and just keep on trying to express yourself freely so if you do watch him play yes he does make a lot of mistakes but he never gives up he does keep trying and and I also noticed one thing about him he gets a lot of hard hits from some big, burly Brazilian defenders. But he gets straight up. He doesn't really make too much of a fuss about it. You know, very different from, say, Neymar in the, in, in that respect. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've quite a lot of respect for him from that point of view as well. He, he seems to have a good head on his shoulders. You've said this often, Austin, about, you know, the matches coming thick and fast in Brazil. You know, he, he has had a few chances to shine and mature simply because Flamengo rotate their squad so often on match days, especially if they're competing on more than one front. He wasn't given any time in the Libertadores, but, you know, he was given some time in the Sudamericana, including against um, Chilean side Palestino. And he had, I think, probably one of his better appearances against Palestino. And, and, And I think that was the game where he scored his first professional goal. Am I right in saying, Austin? Yeah, it was a 5-0 win against a Palestino team that was really, really poor. (laughs) Yeah, around the same time, I remember getting a stream up of a a 0-0 draw against uh, Botafogo. 
And in that game, Junior came off the bench and he looked really dangerous um, from the first minute. And he was a bit unlucky not to win his side the game. I think he might have even hit the bar. So there, there, there has been some good signs. I remember reading a stat that sort of 10 games into the season, despite his limited time on the pitch, he had actually completed more dribbles than any of his teammates. There is some promise there. At 16 years old, you're not going to play unbelievable every week, I don't think, especially in a league like that. But I, I, I still wouldn't write him off yet. I think there's a lot of talent there, a lot of skill there. And if coached right, he he could still become a world-class player, in my opinion, from what I've seen. But, you know, it, I think it's hard uh, at this moment in time to, you know, when players are that young um, and they're not just developing as footballers, but also as men, to say, you know, this, this guy is a dead sir or not. But, like I say, I think he shows a lot of courage and I think that could possibly take him a long way. I know that you're not too keen on him, Austin. And Oh, no, I'm you know, absolutely. You, you may have... I, I think he could be a fantastic player. I don't. I think it's absolutely way too early to make any sort of judgments. I just don't like all of this focus on him because what he is is he is an average player at an average Brazilian team. And, and that doesn't mean that he's not going to be great. But had Real Madrid not swooped in and paid 45 million euros for him, and obviously they did so with reason, they did so... You know, they didn't just kind of make that decision spur of the moment. But it's not as though this guy is some sort of the next coming of Pelé or, you know, Messi incarnate in a Brazilian football pitch. He's a fine player who, as you said, Adam, has shown potential but has not exactly torn things up. And again, as you said, he's only 17. There shouldn't be any expectation that he would. But you just watch him and there are these moments. But then you kind of put these moments into context, his three professional goals have come in a 5-0 drubbing of a really, really bad Palestino team and a 2-0 win in which he scored a brace against the worst team in Brazil by far this year, Atletico Goianiense. He really has not played much for Flamengo. As to in far, He has 18 appearances in the Brazilian Down, but he's only made four starts. He's only played 90 minutes once, and a lot of these appearances are 20 minutes or less when it's just really hard for him to get in the rhythm of the match. You know, eight minutes against Atletico Mineiro to start things. Nine minutes against Atletico Goianiense. You just look, there's a seven-minute appearance in a 5-1 win against Chapecoense. Three minutes against Corinthians. And it just seems like he's not given enough time. And that's where it is kind of, it's difficult because this Flamengo team have aspirations. They are trying to make the Libertadores. There's a lot of pressure on them to make the Libertadores because they crashed out of it this year. There's a lot of pressure on them in the Sudamericana as well. So there's not necessarily room for him to get in the team and then just kind of play and play through those growing pains. And so because of that, we're just not given all that much to work with on him as a player, which as you said, Adam, is why it is kind of disappointing that he didn't get to play the under 17 World Cup for Brazil, because in that situation, he would have been given those type of minutes that he simply hasn't gotten at the club level. Doesn't mean he's not going to be a great player. Doesn't mean he's not going to develop into a great player. But any thought, and there was this sort of thought among a subset of Flamengo fans that this guy was going to be the key to their season, that's been completely proven wrong because he's been a bit part who's playing a minor role for this team that comes in and gives them some good minutes sometimes. But that yeah, is but kind of what he is at this point. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, I guess it's where you've set your 
expectations levels for him. For me, he's kind of meeting my expectations at this point. Yeah, I didn't really expect that much more from him because switching from youth football to senior football is is very difficult, especially when you're that young. Like I say, I've seen enough signs there that next season with more minutes, more starts. But I just don't know that with a bit more coaching. You know, but what, why not? Because, because the, of the because the because of the pressure of the yeah, club. Yeah, because the way that Flamengo are as a club and the players that they have in there, you look at their squad list. They already have so many players that can play in that position. You have Giovanio, a guy who came back from Asia and, and can be talented. Uh, Orlando Berrio, the Colombian, is, is a player that Reynaldo Rueda has certainly liked at Flamengo. There's just always going to be so much competition for those spots for Vinicius Jr. That I yeah. just think it's going to be difficult for him to get in and get the significant playing time that in his career he needs right now. Well, you could be right on that. And and one of the things which always worried me about that move was the fact, what is Flamengo's motivation to play him now as well? You know, if, if, if he isn't absolutely brilliant week in, week out, you know, he, he is such an easy job because they've already got their money for him. So, yeah, that, that must be a bit of a worry. I think it. I think it's going to be something which is going to be fascinating to watch over the, over this next year or two. He he can't move. He can't move to Real Madrid, can he? Until he's eighteen. So, and even then, you know, give him time, different coaching, different setup, a couple of the right loan moves, and he could still come good. Then there's definitely a player there anyway. Certainly, and I don't. I wouldn't disagree with that as an assessment of him. I just think it's it's so hard to try and make a judgment because we just haven't seen it. And that, and again, that's not to say that we won't see it. Again, he, he's seventeen. Like, there's so much time for him to develop as a player. It's he's probably still seven years away from even becoming close to what he would be as a finished product. So there's there's plenty of time there for this guy, but. It's hard to definitively say, you know, boom or bust at this point for me because, like I said, I just haven't seen enough of him. And I don't think it's fair to try to judge a player on these 15-minute spurts when he's coming into a match that has kind of been dull and trying to find foot. You know, that's a difficult situation for any player, let alone for a 17-year-old playing at the biggest club in Brazil with with, with all of the pressure. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Um, it's obviously a lot of pressure. And I think it really shows how Brazil is very successful at marketing their young talents and, and identifying these wonder kids, the new Pele, the new Ronaldinho at such a young age. And I think in some regards, Colombia is behind in that. But I also think there's a lot of benefits for players having a more low-key development opportunity. As I mentioned, a lot of youth sides aren't even playing professional football. But one player we've asked about, Brian, also mentioned um, Juan Cam- uh, Camilo Cucho Hernandez who's a player who made his debut just after his 16th birthday. And by his 17th birthday was the captain of uh, Pereira, which is second division, but it's one of the biggest second division sides. They have a big stadium. They have a big support in the coffee region in Colombia. And he was the captain of the side. He was the top goal scorer playing attacking midfield. Uh, He got his side to finish first in the league, but due to a player system, they didn't get promoted. He then moved to America de Cali. Again, it was a situation where they, well, he was actually purchased by the, the Podso group, and then was loaned by them to America de Cali because he couldn't move to England until he was 18. Uh, so he moved joined America de Cali where he was, again, a loanee, a talented loanee, but there was no incentive to play him. But over the six months he spent in America, he became this, 
of their key players. And by the time they got to the playoffs, he was the guy driving everything forward, taking set pieces at 17 years old, you know, in front of a packed Derby crowd, driving the team forward. And he's now moved on loan to Wesco in the Spanish second division from Watford. And he's tearing it up. Player of the month, absolutely bossing it for a kind of mid-level uh, team in that league. He's been the star man. He's scored three or four goals already. So overall in his career, he's still only 18 years old. So a couple years older than Vinicius, but he's played 73 games already, scored 29 goals, seven assists this uh, this season. He's just, he's a quality player. He's really, really interesting. So there's people that asked about him. And for me, he's he's excellent. I think next year, next summer, he could be pushing Carrillo and Richarlison for one of those wide positions for Watford. I think he's really that good. And it really shows the difference. Uh, Vinicius was bought at 16 and, and is now dealing with that pressure. Camilo was captain at 16, but really went under the radar until he uh, until he broke into to the team. And now he's moved to Europe and every step he takes with ease and, it, and looks so comfortable. And so the only pressure you see on his face is a pressure to get that team He's a star for to win. So very, very impressive, mature, attacking winger, driving forward, passing, tracks back in defence, a real complete, complete attacking midfielder. And one to definitely watch out for, for Watford fans and followers of Spanish football, because I think he's going to be really good. I know when we talked about him, Simon, on our Spotlight pod that we did, we were certainly of that opinion that for his age, he was a very, very mature player. And it's definitely good to hear that he's continuing to show that and as you said, should be very interesting for Watford players going forward. Listen, guys, let's move on from our discussion here of, of youth players and let's, uh, let's head now to Chile, Adam, with you, where the questions now with the national team are no longer will they make the World Cup. We know the answer to that. They did not. But what's next for Chile? Uh, it's going to be a while before they next play a con- uh, competitive match. That will come at the 2019 Copa America in Brazil. Juan Antonio Pizzi unsurprisingly out as Chile manager. A whole list of names have been floated as potential replacements. Definitely Sven-Goran Eriksson, my favorite of the names that we've seen so far, because I think it is by far the most preposterous. But Adam, I'll let you kind of walk us through who you've seen as as potential options for Chile, and then kind of give us who you would like to see as the next Chile manager. And, And obviously it is a difficult time because of that lack of competitive fixtures that this is kind of a development period for Chile, which is tough when the majority of your good players are significantly up there in age and may not be around for the 2022 World Cup. Yeah, I think this is a really tricky situation now Chile are in because, like you say, Austin, you know, we're looking at 20 months really without a competitive match. As you say, players, you know, like Vidal and Medel, Arangis, they're already the wrong side of 30. And by that time, Sanchez will be as well. Who do Chile bring in? What exactly are they looking for? And again, it's this big question of there seems to be a real lack of direction at the moment in the Chilean FA. So it's so difficult to say. That's why you've got an absolutely kind of bizarre list of of names, eight different managers with eight very different styles of play. I'm not really sure which one of those options would actually be the best one? Because you could you can find arguments for half of them, I would say, um, and completely rule the other half out. And I will go through some of those names in a minute. 
I would say that there's eight which have come up consistently. I think Ecuador are probably going to find this out too. When you're looking for a manager at this point with, you know, the Copa America not for another couple of years and World Cup qualifying for Qatar 2022, not for another couple of years, it's going to be difficult to attract the right kind of manager, I think, because the kind of manager which Chile need and probably Ecuador too is is a manager who's going to sort of inject some fresh ideas and and a lot of energy into the side but that's hard to do in just friendly matches and some of the names linked I don't see doing that you know the top of the list probably the most famous Chilean manager around Manuel Pellegrini yeah he's currently in China and apparently it would take a lot of money to get him out of his contract in China so I don't see the Chilean FA going down that route because you know there's nothing urgent which needs to be done particularly at this stage and probably if they wait a little bit longer he'll probably get the boot in China I think they have quite a high turnover in, in managers over there so he, he remains an option he seems a popular choice with a few of the journalists here in the country personally I don't see it as a particularly good fit I, I just don't feel that his kind of management is the kind of management that Chile need at this point. I, th- I think we need a manager who's comfortable working with a younger squad because um, this Chile squad definitely needs an injection of youth into it. Um, so we need a manager who's going to you know, give youth a chance. And I'm not sure Pellegrini's the man to do that from what I've seen of his managerial career so far. Another popular name here is the current River Plate manager, Marcelo Guiaro. For me, I think he is possibly the best candidate out of them. Up-and-coming manager, highly thought of. If Chile don't get him, then he's almost certainly going to move to Europe and um, and get a job there. Probably at a club in La Liga, I would imagine. He could be a good fit. He's got a lot of experience here in South America, obviously, He's got a decent record working with younger players. Yeah, he's, he's tactically quite astute as well, as, as we've seen in the Copa Libertadores. Um, so, yeah, he would be an interesting uh, appointment for me. Another one which would probably be about the best appointment, in my opinion, but I don't think he's interested in the job, and that's Eduardo Barisso, the current Sevilla manager. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he he's building his career there in the Liga, and um, he's recently switched from Celta Vigo to Sevilla. So I don't see that as a realistic option. You have already joked about Swenkor and Eriksson, um, and I do hope that is a joke. I don't trust this Chilean FA to completely rule it out a hundred percent. They are probably stupid enough to to go for somebody like that who would be happy to pick up his paycheck for a couple of years before an absolutely disastrous 2019 Copa America. And then Chile are sort of back to the drawing board before those World Cup qualifiers trying to find a new manager again. Another name, uh, a guy with plenty of international management experience with Honduras and um, Ecuador, current Flamengo manager and and current Copa Libertadores holder as well with Atletico Nacional last year. That's Ronaldo Ruda. I think he would be a decent appointment. Again, I, I'm not 
particularly sure he's exactly what Chile require at this stage. And also when he was manager of Ecuador, thinking back, I, I was impressed with him in qualifying. But I always remember during the 2014 World Cup, the game against Switzerland, he got some big decisions wrong during that game. And that's always stuck in my mind about him. I have some doubts there. Another name for cut is the current Atletico Nacional manager. And we'll get, we'll get Simon's thoughts on him in a minute. And that's uh, Juan Manuel Lilo. This is a guy who's worked in the Chile system before. I think with Bielsa and Sampaoli, he, he had a role to play with both of them. And if Chile are looking to kind of stick to the style that has brought them success um, over the last few years, and certainly sort of bringing through some fresh and younger talent as well into the side, I think this could be the most astute appointment out of the eight. But again, that, 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 that kind of depends on how committed the Chilean FA want to be towards a certain style. And a couple other names... Miguel Herrera, the ex-Mexico manager. Yeah, not not sure on that. He, he he was linked last time this job came available and Chile appointed PC instead. I know that he was interviewed for the job, I believe, but and and didn't get it. PC got it instead. So his name is still still around the Chilean press, and as is Harold Martino, who was on the end of those two Copa America defeats um, as Argentina manager. So. I'm not too sure about that appointment either as, as good of a job he's doing at Atlanta United at the moment and I don't, I don't see Chile even attracting him really to the job I, I don't see Martino giving up that situation he's got going there in the MOS at the moment for a Chile job with very little prospects for the next couple of years so yeah of those, night, of those names um, as an outsider who would you be most tempted by? Yikes. It's a tough one. I, I like it's it's hard because the the 20 months is is what makes this so difficult because as you said, you need the right type of manager for this because you don't want somebody who who as you kind of alluded to is just going to come in and kind of go through the motions for 20 months before a, a dreadful Copa America and then Chile are right back at square one. That's not what Chile needs at this point. And so they need to get somebody who, who, as you said, will come in and provide that sort of enthusiasm and that sort of engagement into developing these young players and into trying to use this 20 months to be productive for Chile, not just simply trying to run the clock out, if you will, until they can play competitive football again. I've been impressed with Rueda. Um, he struggled a little bit at Flamengo just because I think it's, it's a tough situation. I think he would be a very interesting appointment, um, somebody who's very familiar with South American football, obviously. You mentioned he had the successes with Ecuador, despite maybe some some rough moments at the 2014 World Cup. So I think of the names that are there, Rueda would probably be the one that would stick out for me. But again, it's not like he's a young guy who has a, who may have a ton of enthusiasm for this. If he's in to the Chile job, I think it would be a good appointment. But if he doesn't seem like he's particularly in, engaged with it, then you know Chile need to look elsewhere because, as you've said, Adam, they need to find that person who will use this time to be productive rather than just kind of simply go through the motions. You know, looking at it from that point of view, it's got to be somebody, we're talking pre-pod as well, you know, who, who's just not looking to pick up an easy paycheck because that's what it will be as well for, for those next couple of years. It's got to be somebody who's enthusiastic about working on a project 
and that project has got to be presented to him attractively as well. So by by the Chilean FA, and and they've got their work cut out there, I think. Sam Allardyce um, is available, Adam. Just in case you, you wanted an option closer yeah. home for you. Mm. Um, I can't. I can't see the uh, the current Chile squad being quite up to his physical uh, demands that he puts on it, on his players and and the kind of style of football sure. he likes to yeah, play. That's that's the <laughs> that's the only thing keeping Sam Allardyce from being the next manager of Chile is this, the squad simply doesn't fit his style. Yep, exactly right. They need to do some growing first, but. But Simon, so of those eight appointments, if, if if I was pressed, I would probably say somebody who I think would take the job seriously and and bring the style on is the current Atletico National Manager, Juan Manuel Ligio. But he's he, he's not so popular, is he? Really, there at Atletico National, and and I was asking you pre-pod about what they thought of his style and your line went, so I didn't get to hear your answer. So. Let me hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think, I mean, he's in a difficult position because basically Atletico Nacional had an incredibly successful team. They built a Copa Libertadores winning side. Um, and since they've won the Copa Libertadores, they've now sold basically all of them. Um, 15 odd players, about 40 million euros worth of sold players gone out in the last few months. So, you know, the directors are massively unpopular. And he is kind of one of the one of the least hated of a very much hated bunch at the moment at the top of Atletico Nacional. There's a lot of discontent about the direction of the club. Um, some people feel that they're just selling off all of their assets, which does look like the case. They've brought in a couple of interesting players. In terms of the manager, well, I think the team overall is very much reliant on Dairo Moreno, the, the forward. Uh, he scores all of their goals completely as I mentioned earlier they have played with three at the back at times and they have used to uh, look to use the pace out wide which has been an important facet of their their game again two defensive midfielders with Magnelli Torres often in front and then two wingers and then Dado Moreno through the middle so you know it's somewhat attacking but this is again only playing domestic games and and Atletico Nacional really are expected to win most games even though the team has been weakened you know they can set up against a lot of teams with less at the back and and play the you know have have a lot of width and have a lot of players in the final third, but he does have these two defensive midfielders as well. So it's 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 not overwhelmingly been embraced by the fans. Again, they had a very good thing with Rueda, who inherited a very interesting squad and a very well drilled squad from his predecessor uh, Carlos Osorio, who did some really interesting things on Nacional. He's kind of inherited a very drilled bunch that's then kind of been sold off as soon as he took, took over the position. So it's a difficult situation for him. The fans are still a little bit uneasy. It's not quite as good as it was, but in many senses, it never really was going to be, given the players they've sold. I think the the key to his success as national manager will come January, February, when they begin the Libertadores campaign, and the fans are going to expect four or five high-profile signings. There's talk of uh, Zuniga coming in, the former national team player at fullback. Maybe Gio Moreno coming back from China. But in terms of his style of play, there's um, there's still questions. He's getting the results necessary to stay in the playoffs and stay at the top of the league. But fans are not overly excited by the, the style of play. It's not as 
not as stylish and not as dominant as it as it once was under previous managers. To kind of close up our discussion on on all things Chilean here tonight, Adam, we had a question from Arsenal fanatic on Twitter. First of all, Simon, was that you that sent that one in? Arsenal fanatic. Yeah, no, not me, not me. Arsenal, Arsenal pessimist okay. over here. I'm not, quite, I'm not quite fanatic anymore. Okay, we'll keep that in mind for for future editions. But asking about Universidad Católica, Adam, um, I know that. When they had Nico Castillo there, who of course is now playing for Pumas in Mexico, one of the more impressive Chilean club sides we've seen in recent years. Castillo left. They were quite close to getting out of their group in the Copa Libertadores, and then some results went against them to close out that group. What's been the issue for Católica? Is it simply that they don't have Nico Castillo anymore, or, or is there kind of something more there? Yeah, that, that's definitely the main reason. He was that big of a player for them. You know, he was top scorer in both the uh, Apertura and the Clausura last year. Two things happened at the start of the first half of this year, um, which meant that Católica didn't compete for the title. One being that Castillo left and they didn't properly replace him. Um, Silva, Santiago Silva, his replacement, has, has missed too many easy chances. The other big thing, of course, was the fact that they were competing in uh, Copa Libertadores in the toughest group. And it meant that they were concentrating on that rather than the league. And in the end, both things went went disappointingly for them. Um, and in the second half of the year, so this current season, they haven't really got going yet. Again, some key players absent. Fuenza Lees has missed a couple of games, for example. Bruno Otti has been absent as well a couple of times. The thing with Godolica and Mar- Mario Salas' uh, signs in general they usually get going sort of halfway through a season and then come on strong. And this time it hasn't clicked at any point. I think this, this year has just been a write-off for them. It'd be interesting if they stick with Salas or not going going into next year. I think, I think he deserves another shot at it, but it's whether or not the club directors feel that they maybe need to shake things up a bit again. Well, it is, it is South American football, of course, so I, I'm sure they will probably feel the need to, to shake things up again if past results are any sort of indication anywhere on the rest of the continent. Uh, let's shift now a little bit to the Colombian club game. And Simon, I know that you've been getting a lot of questions from all around about the insanity that is the Colombian relegation system. I know that you and I have, have talked about this a lot before, but Kind of for maybe somebody who's not been able to hear the explanation on, on a pod previously. Uh, the Colombian relegation system set up to protect big clubs is now about to harm one of its biggest yet again in America de Cali, uh, who could potentially be playing not only for the league championship this season, but also to avoid relegation down the stretch. Explain how that's even possible. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Colombia has, each year there's two seasons, the Apertura, Clausura. Uh, so there's uh, two seasons, two championships decided each year, as in other parts of the continent as well. So it's 20 games, you play your local rivals twice, you know, an extra time against your local rivals. Uh, so there's 20 games, the top eight go through to the playoffs, quarterfinal, semifinal, final, all over two legs, and then you get your champion. So again, that's again more of American style sports with the playoffs so you can finish eighth and still win the title but that's how we do it makes things exciting fills the stadiums everyone has something to play for um, in terms of the championship 
the teams at the bottom are not necessarily concerned about relegation, though, which again is one of the quirks of the Colombian system. So as well as the championship title, which is uh, has tables which run for half a year each, there is also a relegation table. <laughs> this is where it gets complicated, even more complicated. So we have the relegation is decided over six seasons or three years. So the, the accumulated points over those three years decides who gets relegated, which side has the lowest points at the end of each year. They're all added up for the last three years and the team at the bottom gets relegated, which is you know fair enough. But the issue is the team that gets promoted doesn't then start on zero and it's work out, worked with averages. They don't start you know on, on the, the mean points or whatever, or the lowest points. They actually start on the points of the team that was last relegated who in turn, so they basically have the points score of the last two relegated teams, which leaves the promoted team starting the league 10, 15, 20 points away from relegation, uh, away from surviving relegation, the drift at the bottom. So the two promoted teams at the start of this year were America de Cali, which got the first promotion position, and Tigres, which is a tiny, tiny team. I think they've had an accumulative attendance over the last seven or eight months of about 8,000 for their home games. So they're like a pub team, basically. Anyway, so Tigres got the worst position. They picked up, because they were the second promoted teams, they picked up the points of the last place team last year. So they were basically adrift at the bottom with very little chance of surviving, even if they did particularly well. And they've done okay, considering they've done all right. They're sort of mid-table now, which is pretty good for them considering, but they're basically relegated already. Um, they are 12 points off at the bottom. And then the other promoted team was America de Cali, which finished the, they were the first promoted team from the second division last year. So they pick up the second worst points average total. So in the first season, they got into the playoffs. They did very well. They eventually lost to lost to Deportivo Cali and then they didn't make it through to the, to the final, but you know, first half, first season, playoffs, championship contenders, fair enough. Second season, uh, at the moment, they're 10th, but they're very close. One point off the playoff positions with five or six games to go. Again, a good year all round, couple of uh, championship title contending seasons. But because of the bonkers relegation system, they may be 10th now and they finished, I think, 7th uh, for the first round. But in terms of relegation, they're 19th. And they actually are three points now off Jaguares, who are 18th. Jaguares are also 7th in the championship table. At least with Jaguares, it's mostly their fault in points. Whereas America de Cali have had two good seasons and will may still get relegated as a result of the poor performances of last season's relegated side. So America de Cali and Jaguares are both in a position where they could win the championship, be the champions of Colombia, get to the Copa Libertadores, the continental competition, um, you know, win all the trophies and still find themselves relegated because uh, Jaguares, which is the other contender for those positions, did equally as bad. So at the moment, Tigres are probably down. America de Cali are three points off. Jaguares and Cotolua, who have 128. America have 125, most of which weren't their points, but this is how it works. So America now have six games, including one tomorrow, against bottom place Tigres to to survive, save save themselves. This is Colombia's 
second, first, second, third most popular team, millions of fans, a team that got to uh, three or four Copa Libertadores finals in the 80s, a team that's won, you know, I think 13 championships, a huge, huge team in Colombia. And they may be facing relegation because of a system that was set up specifically to keep the likes of America de Cali from getting relegated. But one relegation has meant they struggled to get promoted and now they are promoted means that the system is dragging them back down again. So, yeah, there's tense times in Cali for one of Colombia's biggest sides. Simon, I'm not inherently opposed to the idea of determining relegation over a number of seasons. I think it actually... I don't know. I don't want to say it actually kind of makes sense, but it does make sense in a way. You know, it, it doesn't punish a team for a particularly bad year, especially when you have two different seasons in a single year. But for a team to have to deal with the points of a, of a different team is just complete, so completely absurd. Like, who thought that this was a good idea or a good thing to do? Well, yeah, I mean, it was obviously all set up because the, uh, the expectation was... Well, look, so we've got these rubbish teams in the top division. They're going to get relegated. And then what happens is we get some rubbish teams from the second division. I mean, we don't want them hanging around in the top division with their empty stadiums and their lack of sponsorship money and all all these kind of negative things. So let's just make it. So we'll have relegation and promotion, but we'll just put the small teams going up and down, up and down, up and down. And and the big teams will stay at the top. And, you know, the big teams aren't going to have three bad years in a row. You know, they might have one, but it doesn't really matter. And. At least they won't get relegated. And that all went out the window. America de Cali were put on the Clinton list. Their finances were frozen. They lost their sponsors. They lost all their players gradually over five or six years. And and eventually they, you know, the Colombian Giants became a, a weak team and, and they were forced into relegation. And now they have a squad with international players. They have Fernandez up front, who's, who's an international forward. They've got players who played in Italy. They've got... You know, even when they were in the second division, they had some of the best players in Colombia in their side. So, you know, I, you know, I, I do feel that they should still be able to get out of this. And six games, they're now pretty much level with the competitors. But that's been the case for five or six. So while they have done well to work into a position where they're now kind of on par, they're not yet pulling away. And the pressure is starting to build. So... It's going to be horrible if they get down to the last couple of games. And actually, relegation is only on the league format. So if they do get to the playoffs, those points don't count. To do all of their business in the top eight of the championship and also pulling away from Jaguares and uh, Cotolua in the next six games. And it's going to be tense. It's going to be very, very tense. I'm certainly, I'm certainly surprised. (laughs) The Colombian champions may be in the second division. I'm certainly surprised, Simon, that we didn't get some sort of new relegation format this year. You know that. Oh, now that America are back, we're going to change how relegation is calculated. Nope, I guess they're going to be fine now. But you know, give them credit that at least they stuck with the system that they had going in, right? There was actually talk of doing that, moving it to one year, but. Obviously, they didn't get the paperwork done in time to save America de Cali, and we're still in this three-year format, um, which is bad for Cali. Good for Envigado. We finished bottom at the start of the season, so we're still not worried for another two years about getting relegated. So, mad system, and times for America de Cali still. Uh, Final thing here on Colombia, Simon, before we move on. Uh, The Colombian Cup 
as I mentioned earlier, had its first leg tonight. Independiente Medellin and Junior finished 1-1. They will play a second leg. The winner of the cup goes into the playoff round of the of the Libertadores. So this is a pretty big deal for both of these teams, no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still a chance that they could win the, the league and get in that way. But two legs and they're in. So this is a huge game. And it's two teams which I would like to see in the Libertadores. Uh, Junior obviously have Tiago Gutierrez and Jimmy Chara. They've brought in some decent defenders. James Sanchez as well in midfield is a player I like. Harlem Barrera, who scored the goal tonight. They've got a lot of good players. I'd like to see them. I think they'll be a, a, an attractive, interesting addition to the Libertadores. Medellin have Juan Fernando Quintero as the number 10. So, obviously, I'd love to see them in there as well. Uh, Leonardo Castro is a player I like. Castaño had a nice game today. There's, a, there's some good talent there as well. They've actually sacked their manager. And they actually appointed the former Envigado twin Spanish managers. But they can't actually manage until the end of the year because they were registered with Envigado. In Colombia, the managers can't change during the outside of transfer windows, which is an interesting one. So they're officially the managers, although they can't be on the bench or, you know, have their name next to manager on the on the team sheet. Um, so the game tonight finished one all. The first goal was spurious penalty that Juan Fernando Quintero put away. Uh, and then the second goal, uh, Teofilo Gutierrez with a little click around the corner, really nice through ball. And uh, mentioned Harlan Barrera dinked one over the keeper. Uh, I think Junior in the second leg should be favourites. They're a very efficient team. They have, again, some really good attacking players. They're pretty solid. They, they've they started investing a little bit in defenders. A lot of the highlights and a lot of the, the headlines came with the, you know, the forwards. They've got Colombia's two most expensive signings in their team at the moment in Teofilo Gutierrez and Jimmy Chara. That combined with bringing in a few defensive players, lesser uh, left line grabbing, but Solid, decent defenders. Jonathan Murillo is a good player. Jefferson Gomez is unfortunately injured. He's going to be a very good player moving forward. So, yeah, big, big game. But I think Junior should at home and Kija get the get the win uh, to, to pick up the the Colombian Cup and get that important Copa Libertadores place uh, for next year's uh, tournament. All right. Thanks much for that, Simon. We had one Final question, and this one was actually for me. This came from Matthew Pike via Facebook, who wanted to know what Diego Tardelli's chances are, perhaps, of making it to Russia 2018 with Brazil. As well, wanted to know about Vinicius Jr. Gave that those opinions kind of earlier. I don't think there's any chance that Vinicius Jr. will be on the World Cup squad for Brazil. Cheech is not the type of manager, I think, who would take a risk like that to put him on the World Cup squad. I think Cheech will value all 23 of his his roster spots, and and I don't believe there will be any sort of interest or any really sort of push even to get Vinicius Jr. in that squad. As for Diego Tardelli, he's a pretty interesting one. Just got a Brazil recall for the first time under Cheech for the last two matches of the World Cup qualifiers against Bolivia and against Chile. He's a player that has been playing quite well in China and has been in and out of the Brazil squad in the past. He was a favorite of Dunga during his time with Brazil. Uh, Diego Torelli was pretty much always in the squad with Dunga at the helm, at least towards the end there. He's an interesting one. I would put it probably at about 50-50 right now. I think 17 to 18 spots of the 23 for Brazil are, are pretty much shut down at this point. So you're, you're really only looking at kind of five spots for, for Cheech to, to play with and to try to figure out. 
He said that it's not going to be anyone new at this point. It's not going to be a player that he's not called up yet for Brazil. It's going to be someone who he's seen, who he's worked with in his time. Um, so Diego Torelli kind of just got in, in, in at the last possible moment to see if he could get himself a chance. I don't think he will make the Brazil squad for the World Cup. I think Cheech will opt to go elsewhere. Uh, I think Roberto Firmino is is probably the player who will get that kind of in-name second striker spot, though it's going to be Gabriel Jesus up top and, and Gabriel Jesus alone, really. But Tardelli does get, would give Brazil maybe a little bit of a different look, so we'll definitely keep an eye on that and keep you updated. Yeah, Brazil will play England and Japan in the November FIFA window, and then in March we'll face... Russia and Germany, which I think should be very good and, and interesting for Brazil to kind of see how they stack up against some European teams. It'll at least let them get used to that. And then I would expect pre-World Cup that they will venture out a little bit more. And depending on who ends up being drawn into their group, I think you'll see Brazil try to find comparable teams to that to, to have those pre-World Cup friendlies against. So again, to kind of wrap that up, Diego Tardelli could certainly be in the squad, though I think it's more likely than it's less likely at, at this point. But who knows, if he gets a call in in November and impresses in camp, you never really know. Uh, anything else that we want to touch on here, guys, before we wrap it up? No, I, th- I think that's enough for this week, Austin. I will say that, you know, this is something we're going to look to do regularly. And so, you know, if anybody's listening to this and has any questions for us, then please get in touch and we'll try and answer them. The next time we do one of these, I'm not sure when that's going to happen because we've got Libertadores to cover, haven't we, over the next couple of weeks, so... Yeah, if it's Libertadores related, then we'll probably tag it on the end of that show. Otherwise, then we'll probably be back in November with one of these pods. And the nice thing with our Libertadores shows coming up is we only have two matches to break down. So there will be a lot more time to kind of have that listener interaction. And we love that. Um, You know, we appreciate the investment that you've made in listening to these podcasts. And we're here to answer any questions that you may have. So as Adam said... If you have Libertadores related questions, feel free to, to send those in and, and we will definitely make an effort to get to them because there will be a lot more time uh, on our Libertadores pods coming up than, than we've had in the past. But that is all for this edition of the South American Football Show. Also, someone send me a question about Sao Paulo because I am just dying to talk about how they might get relegated and the fun that I have had watching them crumble apart this year. So send that in so I have an excuse to talk about it on a podcast. Adam, to finish this off, any plugs that you have and, and do you want to let the listeners know where they can find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me at AdamBrandon84. I just want to add something to... One of my points earlier, because it suddenly came into my head, but I didn't mention it. And that's when I was speaking about Pellegrini possibly becoming the Chile manager. One kind of thing to note there and why that could well happen is the current uh, president of, of the Chilean FA, the man who will make all the decisions, is, uh, a guy called Arturo Sala. He has a long-standing friendship with Manuel Pellegrini, so there is a strong rumour that that friendship will kind of result in him being appointed, but that was also a rumour, you know, going back last year and, and the year before as well, so I'm not sure how much you can read into that, really. But yeah, at Adam Brandon 84 on Twitter for any more questions that you have for me. Adam, speaking of strong rumors before I come to Simon, is there any truth to the rumor that when you changed your Twitter account from Canegia's scores to Adam Brandon 84, it coincided pretty much perfectly with the decline of the Chilean national team? Would you just like to comment on that? 
Yeah, it, it does appear that it could be all my fault after all. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for mentioning that again. Well, I just wanted to make I just wanted to make sure that, you know, if there was blame to be had that it did get assigned to the to the right place uh, so that the listeners were able to know. Simon, how about you? Where can the listeners find you on Twitter and, and anything that you'd like to plug? Have you found George Saunders yet? Uh, well, I've got I've got to know where George Saunders is. I can go and get him. It's it's more the Hamilton recap bit is a bit more complicated. I saw him wear a Medellin kit, so I may have an exclusive. He may be the 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 new Medellin signing. He's only in his forties. Can still do a job, I think. Um, but I'm on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. And I have big plans with with Hamilton and George and and <laughs> a few other things, but I'm not even going to plug them or mention them uh, a bit too late because <laughs> so far I haven't fulfilled those. But it's it's going to happen this year, so look forward to that. Don't hold your breath though, but it's coming <laughs> <laughs> this year. But don't hold your breath. But it's coming. I like that. You've covered all your bases there, Simon. There's you've left no uh, no stone unturned. I'm on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. We are down to nine matches left in the Brazil Down season. Don't turn your eyes to the top of the table because that's been settled for months now. It's a fun relegation scrap at the bottom. So keep your eyes there. I will be keeping you updated on all the latest there. And then as Adam mentioned, Libertadores back next week. Lanús River Plate on Tuesday. Gremio and Barcelona de Guayaquil on Wednesday. We will have your recap pod coming next week at the end of that. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. We appreciate all the interaction that we've gotten from you, our listeners. Obviously, we wouldn't be able to do this without you. So a big appreciative thank you to you. But all that's left for me to say on this podcast is thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>